You're listening to Joe Dalton on Dublin South FM, crossing the Rubicon. Welcome to the Joe Dalton Show. My God, I can't believe we're running. This show is now going four years. We've had some amazing people through the years uh, who have shared their wisdom, their life stories with you, the audience. And I'm delighted to have a very special guest on the show today. He's been nicknamed the vasectomy doctor. He has fought for contraceptive in this country. He's a human rights activist, a gentleman. They say that he's very knowledgeable and full of wisdom, but we're going to find that out today. And yes, it's Dr. Andrew Rin. Dr. Andrew Rin, how are you, my friend? Very well, thank you very much for that flattering introduction. Indeed, indeed. Well, you know, as, as, as my mum used to say, you know, self-praise is no praise, so it's better to get it from somebody else. Andrew, you've had a you've had a an extraordinary life. You have a collection of stories when we were doing a research um, about your life and, you know, from Canada to Ireland to, you know, a, a documentary being done on yourself as well in 2019. Before we get all into that, what was your life like before, you know, in your 20s? You know, were you, were you just one of the lads playing football or was, and what led you to get into the, the medical world? Uh, I was never any good at football. Uh, I, was, I was never on a fo- football team of any note. I went to school in Newbridge College uh, where we played rugby, but uh, they, they didn't consider me good enough to. I played on the thirds or something. So that was kind of out. But I was I was interested in music even at that stage and in singing when I was in Newbridge and I was interested in arts and crafts. And Newbridge, uh, it's not a perfect school, but it's, it's, it was very good in that they had one good teacher there called Flanagan who didn't have much hair, a bit like myself. So we called him the Coot, the Coot Flanagan. And he was a brilliant teacher. And, you know, if you, if you have one good teacher in your life, you never forget them. And he taught me so much about writing and um, I owe him a great deal. Uh, I was making fruit bowls. We had a lathe uh, in, in the workshop in Newbridge, which was quite a bit unusual and to actually allow schoolboys to work a, a, turn, a wood turner. And I learned a lot there. And I learned a lot about music and singing. as in the choirs and the opera. And, uh, but not, not athletic at all. Would you say then you had that creative mind, especially, you know, the gift of the hands? Did you feel that, you know, working on this and all through your life, it was it was the curiosity that led you forward right through step by step in each year? Yes, it's, it's, it's great to, you know, get a block of wood and you take the corners off it and you, you put it onto a lathe and you start working on it. And in a couple of days time, you have a fruit bowl. And that's a great, it's a great achievement, um, and you feel it's achievement. Now you have out of a, a, a crude block of wood, you've got something beautiful, and it, it is creative. You're right. And the, the writing was helped enormously by the teachings of Father Flanagan as well, and he encouraged me to be uh, creative, and I actually won a gold medal for essay writing. It's the only, it's the only gold medal I ever. Ever worn in my life. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I was a rugby, I was Seapoint Rugby Club. Um, I used to play right wing. No one ever got past me. That was the, yeah. the one. And then I went to Germany and we played in 18 to 80s when we were older. And I remember yeah. someone tackle, tackling this guy. He was, he was built like a, a, you know, a brick house. And I actually hit him. And I felt yeah. like I'd run into a red brick wall. And I shook 
And I mm. went, you know what? I'm hanging up my boots. I'm hanging up my boots. I'm done with this. This this is this is hurting me. This is hurting yeah. me. You, yeah. you you went to be you you studied to be a doctor. You know, I always say, you know, that's it, it's a vocation. Um, was it a vocation for yourself or, you know, and what made you go down that avenue as well? Well, uh, my grandfather, who I never knew, who died, uh, he was a general practitioner in Southampton. He died at the age of 32, just long before, long before my father got married. My father was only five years old, so I never knew him. But I've ended up with all his papers and he was in Trinity College and he graduated in medicine. And I suppose that that kind of took my fancy. But I always I always liked the idea of being, I wanted to be a surgeon, actually. But I'm too stupid. I wasn't good enough uh, to be a surgeon because you've got to do special training and anatomy and all that kind of thing. Um, but I ended up being a general practitioner in Canada, uh, which is the next best thing. And then, of course, when I started to do vasectomies, um, that is a type of surgery. Uh, so, you know, I, I killed... Uh, Two, two birds with one stone, as it were. And I suppose being a doctor is a very, it's a nice profession uh, because you're helping people, you're relieving their pain, you're relieving their suffering, uh, you're helping them with whatever it is that's bothering them. And you get, get a lot of respect for it. Too. I mean, just not all, it's not all, it's not all fun and games. You'll, you'll make mistakes, you'll have reasons to regret, you'll misdiagnosis. Some people will hate you. Um, but, but there you go. It, 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 in, the, in the overall scenario, it was, a good, it was a good decision. How many people would you have said that you've, I, I would say, counselled over the, over the years of your profession? Yeah, in general practice for 46, 46 years or something. It was quite a long time. I did, uh, I did a 30 something, 32,000 vasectomies. Uh, and I would have seen maybe twice that number of people uh, so I would have done maybe a hundred thousand. My God, do, mm. you know, if if you're doing something and you know repetition, you can get very bored of it all the time. Well, mm. And you're going in and you're doing, you know, you're doing operations or whatever you're doing those days. Mm. Did you ever did you ever feel in those days just go? Do you know what? I am sick to death of this. If I see another set of testicles, I will actually drive myself to drink. I mean, did you ever feel that way? <laughs> that didn't happen to me for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> people, people come up to me years later and said, you, you did a vasectomy on, on me 25 years ago or something. And of course, I said, well, I never looked at anybody's face. So what <laughs> it's yeah it's like the the midwives can say you know they have the lovely pictures of all the babies that they have delivered yeah. over the years and the photographs yeah. of the babies um yeah. i don't think you got too many pictures after it did you <laughs> strange that you should say that we had a we had a photographer in one time we were making we were making slides as it was in those days we were didn't make videos in those days so as i could lecturer on doing vasectomy and I had these slides as as a support and we had a clinical photographer in and the fellow I was doing a vasectomy on was highly amused by all of this and he had a big grin on his face and the nurse who was working with me said you don't, you don't have to smile for these photographs <laughs> <laughs> do you know what that reminds me of looking at the documentary 
and there's a clip of the documentary. There's a young doctor with a man lying on the bench with a beard yeah. on. And, you know, the guy sitting on the bench, he's got this smile on his face and, and you know, the narrator's doing a talk. I'd be going, oh, I wouldn't be laughing and joking. <laughs> Some of us, you know, I'd be very serious and I'd be terrified. So it made it, made it all look wonderful and all. But I'm sure nervous laughs. You've seen a lot of nervous laughs yeah, through the years. Callous well. humor. Yeah. Callous humor. Yeah. I love that, actually. I love that on it. So you you were in Canada. You you worked in Canada and you could say would you served your apprenticeship in Canada. Would that be would that be Yeah, a absolutely. Yeah, I learned I learned my trade because when you're in medical school you don't really learn much about hands-on medicine. You do a bit, but not a lot. And that's where and I, I learned how to be a general practitioner working with other general practitioners. I worked in this group practice for about six of us in it. So if I had any difficulty, you know, with a rash or whatever it was, I'd call one of the men and we'd, we'd, we'd have a consultation together. Canada was a great country to, to practice medicine and still is. And you'd, you'd be working in the hospital, assisting at surgery and stuff. And great variety. And then you'd also be delivering babies um, in Canada. You don't do any of that stuff here. Uh, here you just practice in your own surgery uh, you, nowadays in the group usually but you don't go into hospital at all you've no access to the hospital but you have in canada yeah uh, the money was good too but you know one, one of the things as well that the difference you know i think we we all bitch and moan here about or you know the the health system here but as I said to people, you know, it'd be different if you were in America, like in America, if you get your appendix out and you can't afford it, they bring you back in and they put your appendix back in, you know, <laughs> you know? so we, yeah. we, we, for such a small country and what we have, I think our medical system has has so many pluses and minuses on it. Yes. What, what brought you back home to Ireland from Canada? Well, it was uh, my wife, then wife, and I agreed we'd go to Canada maybe for four or five years. And that after that, we'd come back. And we were quite determined to do that. I mean, there is no place like home when all is said and done. And I was interested in Irish music. Uh, I played a bit of music and I sang. And I missed I missed that aspect of it. And I missed Ireland, even though I came home quite often. But a lot of people go to Canada or go to America with the intention of coming home. They never do come home. Because once you start having children, and your children start going to school and they start making friends. And then you put in a swimming pool and you get very comfortable there and, and you never come home. And you spend your entire life in, in Canada or some similar place. And I think that's very sad. And and some of those some of my colleagues are still out there. Yeah, it's like I went away for six months um in my early twenties and, and yeah. end up coming back twelve years later. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you know all about it. And, and, you know, one of the things, and you talk about Ireland and you talk about traditional music, when you're away, you actually start to appreciate your Irish heritage more so than you're here. And the Irish music, we used to go to great Irish bars when we were abroad and they'd have great singers in. And it just, you know, it's home from home. It's, It's very important. It's yeah. to keep those roots in. As and when I say to people now that you know that live in America or live abroad, and they say, "Oh my, oh you know, my parents are Irish," I says, "Oh, so you're from the old country?" Is the terminology that I would use on it. So they uh, they go, "Oh yeah, the old the old country, the old country indeed." Yeah. So yeah. you came home. You decided to set up your own practice. 
1974. I, I was only four. I was yeah. only four in 74. There's a song. We could write a song about that. I was only four in 74. Was it initial that I'm going to come home and set up the general practice and I'm going to do, you know, vasectomies or did sort of meander in, into that sort of part of the profession? Yeah, the, the vasectomy and it was very strange. I was not going to do vasectomies when I came home. For some reason or other, I didn't think I was going to do them uh, until I found myself in general practice uh, with, with an awful lot of time in my hands. This would be 75. And uh, I wasn't doing well, I have to say, because it's not easy to break into practice in Ireland. And the con- competition was pretty fierce. And people people got used to going to one doctor and they didn't want to change. And that's that's all very understandable. And uh, I've seen one or two patients a day, whereas my colleagues up the road were seeing 20, 30 patients a day. So I had time. And lo and behold, uh, didn't I get wind of the word that the Irish Family Planning Association were going to start a vasectomy service. So I said, my goodness, that's uh, very interesting. So I phoned them up or, or wrote to them and said, I've done 300 vasectomies in Canada. Uh, can I be of assistance to you? And they were delighted to take me on because that time they were flying in. She was, she was actually an ophthalmic surgeon of all things. So she was a bit out of her own comfort zone, if you like, but she was doing the vasectomies. But uh, she, she was very good at it. They, they would much prefer to have somebody local, obviously. So I started doing vasectomies for the Irish Family Planning Association. We were, we were located in Montreal Square at the time, and then we moved to Sing Street. And I worked with them for maybe 10 years, um, until the mid-80s, and I became the chairman of the Irish Family Planning Association. And then, of course, I had to run in with the, uh, the condom case, uh, which made me quite well known. Uh, so, so that's how I got into it, and I, I kept doing vasectomies then all my life. You know, I think when you started doing it, it was a novelty, and you know there was there were certain rules, and I'm sure at that time the religious orders got their ten pence uh, piece in as, as well. Like if you think about them now, they're like MOTs, you know that NCT test. Um, I've thought about being honest. I've thought about it, getting one myself, but friends of mine I've spoke to and they've they've told me what's happened to them. <laughs> I've gone, no, no, I just that squeamish idea. Where on another end, I I could have a dentist. I've had the dentist in my mouth dr- drilling a filling, and I've been so relaxed. I've actually they'd had to wake me up because I was snoring. You know, mm-hmm. so <laughs> different things for different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's one story as well. I know that you're you're it's, you're always asked to tell about it. You know the 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 vasectomy where you had someone come along um, who was a bit disgruntled because of the issues that they felt that happened, and they pulled a gun on you. And I can know what it's like having a gun pulled on you. I remember being abroad, and um, there was a collection of myself and friends, and um, a gun was pulled on us. Um, and was quite scary, and I got a bang in the head off the gun then as well. You know, the story that happened to you, you know, people can watch it in the documentary, but one of the things that I noticed when it happened, I went silent for a couple of days after. Even though it happened, I none of us spoke about it or acknowledged it, and it was sort of that, that thing that played in my mind for about three days, fours after. And it was silent. And then on about the third, fourth day, I spoke out about it and everybody started speaking out about it. And everyone was relieved that we started talking about it. What was the thoughts after it happened? Was it kind of nerving or did you need to get counselling in any way? 
Yeah, my, my, well, my immediate thoughts after I escaped him, because he kept shooting at me, he fired at me eight, about eight times. And fortunately for me, he kept missing. He hit, hit me the first time because I was down on the floor and I was an easy target. And he tried to shoot my genitalia, but bullet ended up in my right hip. But once I escaped from him uh, and I, I ran down the streets of Clane and I could, he was still shooting at me. My immediate thoughts were... Thanks be to Christ, I got out of this, uh, and I never become, I never come closer to death than I did at that at that moment. So I suppose my thoughts were one of um, fantastic relief, almost to the point of being um, euphoric. Um, so they were my initial thoughts. And then I was eventually brought to St James's Hospital and a three-hour operation when they took the bullet out, and I was a bit sick after that, after the anaesthetic, and. Even then, I was—I had a sense of relief. And of course, all my friends came in, not all at the same time, but one, one by one for the next three days. And everybody wanted to know how to, what happened to you. Because I told them. Uh, and I went over again and again and again. I kept telling them as, as they came in what had happened, how your man had come into the surgery, how he pointed the gun between my eyes. I, I pulled the trigger, what he said to me, and the whole lot. And I relived it uh, so often, a bit like what you were talking about there. It's, it's really post-traumatic stress disorder, if you like. Yeah. I, don't actually, I don't actually believe it. Believe it exists. I think it's a, it's a handy one for the for, for the courts. It sounds good. Yes. I had severe post-traumatic stress disorder, and I talked it out, and I was grand. I didn't, I didn't need any counselling. I had a, a, a psychiatrist, psych, psychiatrist friend of mine asked him, should I be looking for counselling? I, I won't tell you what he said because I'm not allowed to use bad language, but he told me to go away and ignore certain So that was that. Do you know, it's, it's, it's sort of when you look back at these things, it's like when someone dies close to you, you kind of go, oh my God, I need to appreciate my life. Um, did you have that moment um, kind of going, you know, I could have been killed? Um, did it change your path in any way moving forward, um, the direction of your life in any way? Not really. No, I can't. I can't give you any great example of what I did differently. Uh, I, I was grateful. Put a lock in your door. I still am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I, I, do, I do, or did, at any rate, scare easily if somebody came in to the house or came into the room and I wasn't aware that they were there or something like that. Uh, I would get a, a reaction to that that I wouldn't have before I was shot. It did change me a little bit, but not, not a great deal. The, the, the bizarre thing of the whole story, which I, I find, was that the guy went in, he asked, spoke, to, and this is the funny part for me, you know, we all picked different parts up of it, you know, went in and spoke to the receptionist and she was always busy and didn't notice this guy was dressed in the middle of summer, you know, in the middle of summer dressed for winter and then sitting down and, and loading up, up the gun and everyone looking at him and going, what the hell is going on here? It's like something out of Father Ted. <laughs> I didn't look at him for very long because the, <laughs> the waiting room was full. Suddenly, was empty, and they all just scarpered, including my secretary. She said, "She said he's down there, second on the rice," and she scarpered. <laughs> secretary is that? Yes, yes. <laughs> you could have offered him a cup of tea, and then. <laughs> 
But what then made you drive towards getting into, you know, human rights and then fighting towards bringing condoms into the country as well? What was the driver, the force behind that for you? I suppose being in Canada and seeing how, how they operated, they had several religions over there, mostly of the Christian type. Uh, but they were tolerant of all of each other. And it did, and the rules in Canada were set to for everybody, not for one particular group, whereas the rules in Ireland were directed at Catholics, um, uh, which I thought was a bit unfair. And, for you know, for people who weren't practicing Catholics or people who weren't interested in following the rules of Catholicism to the letter, uh, they were being denied access uh, to ordinary non-medical contraception. Uh, and I had to go to had to go to England to to get or up to the north to get contraceptives, um, and you couldn't buy them anywhere. And then, of course, the McGee case came along, uh, which meant that you could import and and distribute uh, condoms, but you couldn't sell them. So, in the Irish Family Planning Association, we used to give them give them away and accept uh, a donation. And the, the size of the donation was exactly the same price, same size as the price of the condoms. It was all just utter nonsense. But um, I felt, you know, I'd have people coming in to me, uh, women particularly, about five and six or seven children, who didn't want to have any more. And being able to get the, get the pill, uh, birth control pill, from their doctor. Uh, and then, uh, you know, when, when the... When, how he made that law, the so-called Irish solution to the Irish problem, where condoms were available uh, only on a doctor's prescription. This meant that a man who wanted to be responsible for the price, the size of his family had to present himself to a doctor. And the doctor was supposed to make a decision as to whether he was using these condoms for what, what how he called bona fide family planning. Um, what else he could use them for uh, was beyond me. But anyway, uh, it was just a ridiculous and unworkable piece of legislation, and it was going to be ignored by most doctors anyway. So uh, before that happened, I decided to break it in a very open kind of way in an act of civil disobedience, uh, just to bring attention to it. And, and that worked extremely well, I have to say, even for myself. Uh, I wrote to the DPP and I told them I was breaking the law. And uh, the DPP sent in the Gardaí who collected evidence that I was, in fact, selling condoms, which evidence I gave them willingly. And um, two weeks later, I had a summons to go to court in, in Nice. So it all happened very quickly. And when I got to court, I defended myself, but I didn't defend myself, you understand. Yeah. I made no attempt to uh, deny what I was doing. And I said, I can't, I can't keep this law. It's just ridiculous. And that annoyed the, the judge, Justice Johnson, he got so annoyed with me that he decided to give me the maximum fine, which was 500, 500 pounds at the time. It's a lot of money. A lot of money, yeah. Yeah, but I was delighted. I mean, I didn't want to get off. I didn't want to go on probation. I just wanted to have that headline in the newspaper the next day, Dr. Fine, 500 pounds, which it was. And the, the, the Irish Times took it up, and I got my photograph in front of the Irish Times. And then it became a kind of an international story. And I was, uh, yeah, I was, I was chairman of the Irish Family Planning Association by then. And uh, we'd uh, go to meetings around the world and people would be asking me about it. And it brought huge attention to it. A celebrity. Then, then we got, yeah, we got, we got Barry Desmond was then Minister of Health in a coalition about two, two, three months after that. 
And he immediately set about ch changing the law and putting condoms into a vending machine, but it should have been in the first place. What we're doing in a doctor's prescription, I have no idea. But it did. It, it worked very well. You're listening to Joe Dalton on Dublin South FM, crossing the Rubicon. It's interesting, you know, the time when the church in Ireland, and I don't think a lot of people, younger people don't realise this, that the church was more powerful than a policeman. You know, the, yes. the people were more terrified of a priest than they were of a policeman knocking on the door. Um, and, you know, church and state were one. And I remember in the 1980s when condoms were coming out and we were trying to get a, a tender to try and get the machines so we could put them in pubs in, in the 80s, in the late 80s, that we yeah. we seen a gap in the market and we were starting to see, but unfortunately bigger fish got there before us on it. Mm. Um, Ireland, the land of no condoms and as many macaroon bars as you could eat, you know, the stale chocolate and the grease-proof toilet paper in our schools, you know, the way we were reared on it. Tell me, coming into the last probably maybe 10 years or so with, with what you've seen in, in Ireland change, and especially in the medical arena as well, from those years in the 70s and 80s, do, do you think things have improved massively or do you still feel there is so many changes needed within the Irish medical system? No, I think in the last 20 years, since the turn of the century, uh, things have improved massively, as you say. Uh, and this is a completely different country. It's unrecognizable to what it was in the 80s. And of course, we'll never forget the, uh, the, the uh, debate on abortion and the Eighth Amendment. I mean, that was absolutely frightful because it just uh, split the country in two. And, uh, you know, hugely passionate uh, discussion and debate uh, with the church behind it. And it was a horrible time, really. And of course, the, the, the Eighth Amendment succeeded. And, and uh, it eventually became the disaster that we all predicted that it would. But anyway, um, I never thought, actually, that I'd live long enough to see abortion uh, legalised in Ireland. Not that I, you know, I don't delight in that because abortion is, is, is not a good thing. But nonetheless, it, it, it is innate to the human species. It's always been around, uh, and it, it has to be uh, facilitated and, and taken out of the criminal code. And women who need abortions must be facilitated, not in England, but in Ireland. And that, that has actually happened. And that, that's, that's quite extraordinary. And before that, of course, we had the, the divorce. We, we had several. I think we had to have three different referendums to get that right, but eventually yeah. we got it right. And um, so now we have now now we're in line with with with, with the rest of the world, with Europe and so on. Yeah, I think it's freedom of choice is so important, um, mm. and it's one of the things that I think we all strive for. You said something there, you know, divided the country. Um, history, history has taught us so many lessons. And being a republic and only being a republic for, you know, just over 100 years, um, it's a short time for ourselves. And in many times that we have been divided um, as a nation and we we see that again, we see that again in, in 2021. I was saying to my partner the other day that we are divided. There is the left and the right and the right or the wrong and there's there has to be some sort of way we can bring everybody into the center and unite everyone in the country it's it's interesting that we are you know a small little bit of 
paper put over a face is is dividing a country if you look at there's so many other things as well on it maybe it's it's there's there's a part of us who we are still going through that process of being a true republic to the uh, citizens um maybe uh i don't know uh, i just feel that the the government's reaction Mind you, we're not unique because the same thing happened in England and France and Spain and Italy, all, all over the world. Uh, there's two sides. I think it's a total overreaction to a relatively harmless uh, virus, another flu-like illness, actually. Uh, and, I, and I don't know why they have to lock down the country. I don't know why they have to, you know, you can't go to a concert. You can't, you can't get a pint of Guinness. You can't go anywhere. You can't travel. You can't leave the country. Uh, businesses are going out of, out of business. Um, and, and livelihoods are being destroyed, and the suicide rate has gone way up. Mental health is an issue. We're talking about uh, uh, patients are not being seen in hospital. If you don't have medical insurance, you're in real trouble in Ireland at the moment because there's only one disease, and that's coronavirus, um, COVID-19. And that's the only thing you meet, you, that, that's being allowed to be treated. So if you're, if you're passing blood or you've got some symptoms of bowel cancer or something, and you don't have insurance, you're going to have to wait. And you can't wait for that because every week goes by, your prognosis gets worse and worse. And it's, that's very bad. Uh, so, you know, it's that kind of thing that, that turned me against it. You know, one, uh, one of the things that I noticed was in, in during the summer, when it was the summer we did have lockdown in 2020, and I, I busted my ankle and I went to the hospital and usually you go to the hospital, you know, you go in, you're triaged, you hang around for a couple of hours and you see a doctor and then the, you get x-rayed and, and so on. I went in, there was no one in, the doctors, it was a hot day, we're eating ice cream, the staff were twiddling their thumbs. I got seen, x-rayed, they had to turn on the lights and open up the x-ray room. And it was it was funny, there was a, an Australian doctor there who was doing the x-ray. And I said, this is like something out of the outback of Australia. <laughs> you know, it was, you just had to turn everything on for me. And I was in and out in 20 minutes. And mm. it, it was that time that I kind of went, yeah, where's all these jammed hospitals? Media made us think that it was something like out of um, St. Elsewhere or Grey's Anatomy, you know, the bodies coming in and all the stretchers and the helicopters and this chaos. You know, they, they led us to believe these were what the hospitals were like whistling and eating ice cream was what was the reality of, of it you know i want to just jump back there uh, I, I want to try and find out where it went um and why we still have it uh is fluoride in the water there was something came out there in one of the journals last week that you know the effects of fluoride especially in tea drinking um and it can affect um our creative thinking you know we talk about the fighting irish uh, is it a pacifier for ourselves and I know that there was a big movement a couple of years ago to get it removed and as far as I know the government then said well you know we've just spent three million on this uh, can you elaborate what happened there or what happened with Florida and why we still have it in it and is there still a momentum to remove it from from our water well there's a number of individuals like myself who have made an attempt to take a take a judicial review on this and take an action against the government for um, forcing us to take this medicine because uh, fluoridated water is a medicinal product. And that's the line I was going to take rather than a line that it's doing us any harm. 
I don't know whether it's doing us harm or not intellectually or any other ways, uh, but to prove that would be extremely difficult or impossible. So you're, you're not on a very safe wicket there. So you're, you're on a much safer wicket by saying, listen, the Constitution says that we are tied to the bodily integrity. This is a violation of our of our human rights to bodily integrity. And we had all these very elegant arguments against fluoridization of water, but I couldn't get a, a lawyer to take it on. Uh, you'd be surprised how shy barristers are uh, of taking on cases like that against the state, uh, particularly if they're not certain if they're going to win and it could drag on. It could be very expensive. So I had to abandon it. And other people have tried to do it as well, and they have had to abandon it. Um, so it's still in the water. There's no, there's no sign of it not being in the water. And I think that's going to go on forever. And it's 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 a byproduct of of the fertilize of fertilizing of the fertilization uh, business, and it's put into the reservoirs and it's in our drinking water. And if you, you can't avoid it. It's in the, it's in the tap. If you're making tea, or having a whiskey or whatever, you're going to be close to this stuff unless you have to, unless you buy your own water, which is can be a little bit expensive. Yeah, there's water, there's filters there that you can purchase. Like we don't, we don't drink tap water at home. We do the bottled water. We don't know coming through the system. And then, but there are filter machines out there. You know, they can cost three, four thousand to to clear the water on it. And we've known that people that have used them um, have noticed a difference. They've noticed a difference as well. What happened? You know, all the petitions that I've seen. I know a couple of years ago there was petitions and there was thousands of people signed against it. Do they work? Do petitions work in a stage or do you have to go that extra level? Because, you know, a signature is a citizen saying, we don't want this. I don't think, uh, I don't recall there being a huge um, uh, collection of signatures. Uh, you could be right, Joe, but I don't remember that. But to answer your question, no, they don't necessarily work. Um, we could collect signatures to be blue in the face about the lockdowns and forcing us to wear masks. And now they're going to try and force us to take vaccination. Um, and we could get signatures to beat the band for, against that. And I don't think that, that would make any difference. Uh, that kind of thing doesn't move governments, doesn't move legislation. Yeah, I, th- I think what moves them is the fear of the citizens knocking on the door and making them feel a little hot around the collar. Um, yeah. we, we don't have any general election coming up now until uh, 2024, which is a long time away, three years away. So they're quite comfortable now because they, they know they can do more or less whatever they want to do. Tell me, looking back at your life, Andrew, would you have done anything differently? Would you have done anything differently over over the last couple of decades? I think I, I might have learned how to play the guitar. Or something like that. I sometimes regret not being able to play the guitar, but that's only a very small thing. Uh, because if you, if you can play guitar, you can, you can, it's a great way to get your singing. So I've also had to unaccompanied singing, uh, but I got away with that as well as a, as a medical student. And no, I wouldn't have done anything differently. Uh, that probably sounds very arrogant, but I no time for regrets anyway. Regret is a very useless kind of emotion. But I wouldn't have really done anything uh, different, uh, you know, I bought, I bought the house off the family, lived in this huge Georgian house for most of my life, and now in much more modest accommodation. Um, but, you know, no, I, I wouldn't. No, it's, it's, I always look back. At, I think as you get older, you know, for, for myself personally, it was materialistic goods, you know, in the 20s, and in my 20s and 30s, and as I got into my 40s and then my 50s, 
none of them really matter. You know, for me, it's, you know, peace of mind. It's not about, you know, the flash cars or how much money in the bank anymore. It's, it's really just the quality of life. It's, you know, it's, and I think that as we get older, we get that process and we appreciate these things more. I'm, I'm very, I'm very jealous of you because (laughs) Luke, Luke Kelly, Luke Kelly. Yeah. Yeah. A brilliant man. You know, he, I, mm. I often will throw on YouTube and listen to mm. his songs mm. and the voice that mm. he had. And, you know, mm. out of all the, the folk singers, we, we know Clancy were brilliant. And, you know, Clancy, or even mm. Bob Dylan, you know, spoke highly of them when they went to America. And, but, yeah, uh, you know, Luke was such a great man, such a great man. Tell me, how did you get to meet him or know him or... Well, uh, in, in at that time, I was, I was singing uh, in O'Donoghue's mostly, and we were getting paid for it, and we were getting free drink. Uh, I sang in O'Donoghue's every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So I was I was in I was in the business, of, and I played the gin whistle. I was in the business, albeit on a, at a minor scale. And of course, we all knew each other. I knew all the Dubliners, every one of them: uh, Ronnie Drew and Kira Burton and. Uh, Barney McKenna and all of them and John Sheehan, who I still know, and I sang at the Abbey Tavern in Holt. So once you're once you're in, the, in, the, in the, as it were, you get to know each other. We didn't like each other that much, but we got to know each other, and um, that's how I got to know uh, uh, Luke Kelly. And when I went to when I went to London uh, during a break in my medical career. Uh, I, I met him again, and he pointed me in the right direction and got me work. Uh, to sing in clubs in London. He, he was a great man. He was the greatest exponent of the street ballad that ever was. There's never, never a person who would sing like that. And I, I'd like you, I look at on YouTube and scorn not his simplicity and some of these brilliant songs, a lot of them written by Bill Coulter, of course, uh, The Town I Love So Well, and then that other one, Raglan Road. And, you know, he sang with such, with such gusto and passion and just incredible to this day. Uh, uh, he he is he is incredible, and he richly deserves to have a monument put up to him uh, in, in the inner city, north north inner city. Why people have to feel they have to deface it? I don't know. I think it's it's awful. It is bizarre uh, you know, that they do that. But it, you yeah, know, it's, yeah. if you look back at Luke and the Dubliners, and look at Christy Moore, and look how the music industry has evolved. Now it's X Factor and it's audition and people put together. Where's all the guys jamming in the bands in the garage and you know writing songs and it seems to be all the whole industry seems to be now manufactured mm. instead of creative. Yes, it's um, not as colourful. Yeah, you know the the Sex Pistols, the interviews of the Sex Pistols, and you know uh, Mick Jagger and all causing storms and the Beatles and. Now I think it's how pretty you are and the sponsor of your clothes is more important now. It's it's a shame. I hope they I hope there's a revolution of some way in the whole music industry that we get back to grunge. A of, yeah. A bit of a bit of colour. A bit of colour and a bit of a bit of character in it. Yeah. Uh so I was very lucky to be in Dublin at that time in the sixties uh and and early seventies when it was at its at its height. And we used to go to Flack Hills and all that kind of thing. We had got to know each other. And it was full of characters. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. 
Um, and it has become a bit sterile, to say the least. It is, uh, yes. since, it yeah. needs to give enough, give a, a reversal operation on it, if you can, please. <laughs> <laughs> we can set up a band. We can set up a band. <laughs> I, I love singing. I haven't got a note in my head and my family tell me to be quiet, but I, I will sing at the drop of a hat. Sing at yeah. the drop of a hat on it. Tell me, what's the future for you? What what do you, what's the plans? What's What floats your boat, as one would say? What's the driving force for you now? Well, I think at this stage, you know, I'm heading up to 80 with, with, with enormous speed. <laughs> I think if you can keep healthy is, 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 is my main aim. Uh, keep healthy and keep fit. Uh, that uh, kind of occupies my mind quite a bit. Um, I do a few other things as well. I do still do a bit of writing. Uh, uh, in fact, I'm writing a book at the moment, and that keeps me going as well. I'm, I'm living living here. Um, my wife died three years ago, but I'm in another relationship now, and that's good. And life life is very good, I have to say. And, and I'm enormously grateful uh, for the people who love me and uh, who look after me. And um, so that kind of floats my boat. I still drive and so on. I wish yeah, this all. It's interesting. Yeah. You say you're still driving. My, my father now, he passed away at 84. Um, yeah. And used to sit down and meet him for once a week and we'd have a, have a point again. It's in the graduate, in the graduate. We'd meet up in the graduate pub and he go, and he go, I says, oh, I met some today. And he says, oh, your father's wonderful. He's still driving. And my father and myself would chuckle about this going, why do people think that you get in your, 80s, you know, in your early 80s? And that's the funny thing when people go, oh, my God, aren't you great? You're still driving. You're in your 80s. Or feck off. <laughs> yeah. What sort of words of wisdom would you offer to the next generations that are coming up? You know, words of wisdom of what you've learned over the years, especially with, you know, in your human in human rights and, you know, what's going on in the country today. What would you say to them? Oh, the, don't, uh, don't take yourself too seriously. Have, have a sense, sense of the ridiculous, because a lot of things that are going on today and always have been uh, ridiculous. Don't take your religion too seriously either and keep an open mind. And don't be afraid to express yourself and keep healthy, of course. Uh, don't, don't smoke cigarettes, whatever else you do. Um, uh, drink in moderation and so on and so forth. Um, and look after yourself and look after others as well. And, and be, be cognizant of other people's uh, illnesses and, you know, be kind to people. Be kind to people. You know, I did it. We did another business show here earlier on. And, you know, the message that I gave to people was, you know, we forgot how to belly laugh. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know laugh and joy. It's work, work, work. And we, it's the one thing that's been taken away from us is joy and laughter. Mm. And, you know, if, if you can do that on a daily basis, it, it changed the whole vibration within yourself. Andrew, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. You're very welcome. You're very welcome, Joe. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And remember, here at Dublin South of M, we're interviewing plenty of people around the world conscious leaders and that's why we have the conscious business podcast which is part of the conscious business academy offering purpose profit and prosperity in your life through soulful selling mindful marketing conscious leadership and creative culture if you want to reach out to me it's joedalton.ie you have an awesome week and take care and look after yourself
it is great to be on Dublin South 93.9 FM. On Raglan Road of an autumn day, I saw her first and knew that her dark hair would weave a snare that I might one day rule. I saw the danger and I passed along the enchanted way. And I said, let grief be a fallen leaf at the dawning of the day. On Grafton Street in November, we tripped lightly along. Of a deep ravine where can be seen The worth of passion's pledge The queen of hearts still making tarts And I'm not making hay Oh, I loved too much and by such by such is happiness thrown away I gave her gifts of the mind I gave her the secret sign that's known to the artists who have known The true gods of sound and stone And word and tint without stint I gave her poems to say with her own name there And her own dark hair Like clouds over fields of May On a quiet street Where old ghosts meet I see her walking now Away from me so hurriedly My reason must allow That I had loved not as I should A creature made of clay When the angel moves 
the clay he'd lose his wings at the dawn. 